Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Costa Economo. I'm this guy standing behind this big thing here. I'm quite short. I'm vertically challenged. So most of you probably can't see me, particularly in the back. Um, uh, we, I appreciate the fact that uh, there's been such a great attendance today. Um, it's a, a really uh, great topic that we'll be listening to. We've, we've got the honor of listening to an international speaker. So. So for everybody that's made the effort to, to come and, and hear Dr. David not speak, uh, we really appreciate it on behalf of the Retirement Matters uh, Committee of the Actual Society. Um, I'm not sure about Cape Town, but for those of you in attendance here in Johannesburg, there's a register outside. Um, so for CBD purposes, if you haven't seen it, please don't ignore it. Um, I know that that's a big reason as to why we do attend these things, so let's not, let's not lose out on that opportunity. Um, this session is being recorded, and so to the extent that any questions get asked um, at the end of the session, um, uh, we have a roaming mic uh, into which I'd like uh, you to ask that question. And that would apply also for, for, for Cape Town. Um, so the topic uh, that we're going to be talking about today, or that we're going to be listening to today, um, is a topic that I think um, is of great importance to us all in the retirement fund field. Um, just as in the rest of the world, South Africa has seen a significant move from defined benefit to defined contribution. A lot of focus is applied um, in the pre-retirement um, stages of one's uh, membership of a particular fund in terms of how those assets need to be managed, um, you know, the best advice, the rights of the strategy, the right structure of portfolios, the right asset managers. But then the person that gets to retirement is, to a large extent, left their own devices at the date at which they retire. Um, and often it's at that point that the, you know, the biggest decision needs to be made, um, and often it's a decision that doesn't necessarily suit the needs and circumstances of the individual concern. Um, so this decumulation phase um, is in fact an incredibly important phase of one's life, and I think a phase where very little attention is given um, uh, and, and, and a lot of the time, the member is left to fend for themselves in terms of what it is that they're going to be doing. It's a great honor and a privilege to introduce to you today Dr. David Knox, um, who will reflect on the Australian experience um, in terms of this, or these particular issues. Um, and in Australia, they've had a compulsory DC sort of experience and, and structure for the better parts of the last 24 years. Um, so he'll be talking to us today about the tensions and options that providers retirees as well as the regulator faces in terms of dealing with this particular issue. A brief introduction to uh, Dr. Knox. Um, Dr. Knox is a senior partner at Mercer and a senior actuary in Australia. He's the national leader for research and the actuary to the Tasmanian and Western Australian public sector superannuation plans. He's also the author of the Melbourne Mercer Global Pension Index. Before joining Mercer in 2005, Dr. Knox was at PwC, and prior to that was the foundation professor, sorry, foundation professor of the actuarial studies of, at the University of Melbourne. He has acted as a consultant to a range of financial organizations in both the private as well as the public sector, specializing in the superannuation and retirement incomes area. He has spoken to and written widely uh, on this area and has served, many, has served on many government and industry-wide committees. So, Without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Dr. Knox, who will take us through his presentation.
Well, good afternoon, and uh, thank you very much, Costa, for that uh, warm welcome. It's a, a delight to be in South Africa. Um, I'm coming to Cape Town uh, on Friday, uh, those in Cape Town, so I'll see your uh, lovely city uh, over the weekend. Uh, it's my first visit to uh, South Africa, so I'm having a wonderful uh, week and a half um, across the other side of the Indian Ocean, I think is the best way of describing it. Um, as Costa said, in many ways in the DC world, the accumulation bit is really easy. All we do in accumulation is put money in and invest. Uh, that's easy. When we come to decumulation or the retirement years, it's much more difficult because we're not in all the same position. Some of us are single, some of us have a partner, some will own their own home, some won't. Some will be in good health, some will be in poor health, some will have debts to pay off, some won't, etc., etc. It's a much more complex arrangement than just accumulating money. So what are we going to do in the next uh, half hour, 40 minutes? We're going to look at some global trends as I see them. I will reflect on the Australian experience because, as Costa said, we have had the compulsory system for 24 years in Australia, which means our pension pots are getting to a significant level. I'm then going to introduce perhaps a new word to you, the trilemma, uh, what we call it the retirement trilemma, and explore that look at some options in respect of what people can do in retirement and particularly look at options how we might respond to the longevity risk issue. But first, here's a little graph that shows how life expectancy has increased over the last 40 years from age 65. Now I picked 65 because in many countries that's a reasonably typical retirement age. If you look at the right hand side we have Singapore. This is data from the United Nations. In Singapore, the life expectancy at 65 has gone up eight years in the last 40. That is one year in five. That is a pretty rapid increase in life expectancy, which puts really extra pressure on what you do in retirement and the need for the money to last. On the other hand, down on the left-hand side, you see Indonesia and South Africa the increase in life expectancy is lower in those years, but it may well increase in future years. The point to make is we shouldn't be using life expectancy numbers that are today's when we think about how long the money has to last. We need to allow for mortality improvement going on and on. Let's have a look at some of the global trends that give us this perspective. As I said, we're all living longer. That means that we also have old age dependency ratios that are increasing rapidly in many countries. Now old age dependency ratios are often said to be the number of people in the population over 65 divided by the number of working age, let's say age 15 or 20 through to 64. Now in most countries we now have a total fertility rate below the replacement rate, below 2.1, 2.2. In some countries, it's around 1.5, 1.6. Not so much in South Africa. You're still a fairly young population by world standards. But if you look at countries like France, Italy, Korea, Japan, China, they are going to age very quickly in the next 30 years, and their old age dependency ratios are going to escalate rapidly. So the issue of retirement, retirement ages, and what we do with the money in retirement is a pressure that the world will face. Particularly that means social security costs in many European countries are rising 
and there will be pressure in Europe as to how they can afford to pay those social security pensions when you have fewer and fewer taxpayers to pay them. So we will see inevitably pension ages increasing or retirement ages increasing. We will have to work longer to be able to afford the pension. That will be a global trend. Now, politically, that's really hard. I take Australia as an example. Our pension age, and we don't have a retirement age, but our pension for Social Security is going from 65 to 67 over the next 10 years or so. That's a pretty small increase. The government has said it's going to increase it to 70. That's fair enough. The opposition has said that would be the highest in the world. You can't do that. Now, we happen to have one of the highest life expectancies in the world. It's in the top five, so perhaps that's not unreasonable. But politically, it's really hard to increase the pension age when the opposition is saying that's higher than anywhere else in the world. And people listen to that argument. So we're going to see tensions around the world as to what, where the pension age should be. As Costas mentioned, we're moving from defined benefit to defined contribution systems around the world. That means more risk for the individual. And we're seeing employers and governments pulling out of the whole system. The risks are being transferred to the individual. The governments are saying, we can't afford social security. We won't index the age pension, or whatever one may call it. Employers are saying, we're pulling back from defined benefits. It's on the individual now. The risks fairly and squarely with the individual. Therefore, individuals are being given more responsibility. And as an industry, we therefore need to think about how do we respond to that? What product should we develop? What communication should we develop? How do we engage with the individual? Not only at retirement, but in the years leading up to retirement. <clears throat> One of the other issues that's uh, getting a lot of press in many economies is the gender issue. It's a very broad approximation. The average balance for females is often about half the balance for males. And there's reasons for that. It's got nothing to do with the pension system. Women often take years out of the workforce for family responsibilities. The average female wage is often lower than the average male wage. So the balances are lower. So with that compounding effect, we're seeing gender differences. And that's raising, how do you compensate for those gender differences? Not forgetting, of course, that women tend to live longer than men anyway. So against that backdrop of those global trends, how we convert an accumulation from a DC system into a pension is a really important question. I'm going to give you a little bit of a background on the Australian system so you understand a little bit more where I come from. The Australian system is compulsory for all employees, but not for the self-employed. Employers must contribute 9.5% into a fund that is chosen by the employee does not have to be the employer's fund. The employer will often have a default fund. It may not be an employer fund. It could be a multi-employer industry or umbrella type fund. It started at contribution rate of 3%. It's now grown to 9.5% and it's on the way to 12%. Employees do not have to contribute, but there are tax incentives for employees to do that. So those with capacity to contribute a bit more, do so, particularly 
those in there above age about 45 when they realise they haven't got enough. As I said, most employees can choose their own fund. It may be a retail fund, it might be an umbrella or industry fund. It could be a corporate plan. In effect, what that all means is most employers have opted out. They've just said, this is like a tax. We've got to pay it. There's no advantage in having a good fund. We just pay 9.5% end of story. Preservation is very strong in Australia. You cannot access it until age 56, which is the current age. That is increasing to 60. So it's all preserved. Employee and employer contributions preserved until age 56, going on 60. But having had a compulsory system in the accumulation years, we've got nothing in terms of compulsion in the retirement years. You can do what you like with it. And I'll come on to that. But that's a missing link in our whole system. So we've had a few inquiries, government inquiries over the years, going back to 2010. The uh, future tax system inquiry said there's been market failure. Products are not available in the market to cover the broad range of preferences in achieving security of income. In other words, there hasn't been enough innovation. The products aren't there to develop retirement incomes. They went on to say, given the preferences of retirees, in other words, we're all different, a single product is unlikely to satisfy all people who wish to manage their longevity risk. This suggests a need for product innovation within the Australian market. That was way back in 2010. The end of the same year, we had another inquiry into the super system as opposed to the tax system. They came to a similar conclusion. The retirement income product market has been underdeveloped. And the panel proposes that in this default product, which was called My Super, that they must offer a retirement product. It must explicitly consider longevity and inflation risks when developing investment strategies and it must offer it proactively uh, and to offer proactively advice periodically to members planning for and already in retirement. In other words, proactively offer financial advice to people leading up to retirement and in retirement. Have we got there yet? No. That was 2010. Two government reviews, same year, similar conclusions, we've made no progress. Then, in 2014, we had a major financial system inquiry. This is more recent. Managing multiple financial objectives in retirement is complex. That's what I said a few minutes ago. <laughs> they came to the same conclusion. A well-functioning market would be expected to provide a wider range of products that meet different needs and perspectives. In other words, more innovation, more range, different products for different people in different needs. And they came up with a particular recommendation to require superannuation trustees, superannuation in Australia is our name for pensions, so trustees of pension funds, to pre-select a comprehensive income product for members' retirement. In other words, to set up a default product that you could opt out of, but this is our pre-selected approach. This uh, product, otherwise known as a SIPR, should have minimum features determined by government. So the government should prescribe some features. Should not prescribe the product, 
but the features of the product. And these features should include regular and stable income, longevity, risk, and flexibility. So income, longevity, protection, and some flexibility. All seems reasonable. And they put in their report this little triangle. And basically it says there are three things that people want when they look at a retirement product. They want flexibility. We call it account-based pensions. I think you call it living annuities. It's that flexible drawdown product. Uh, Cape Town, there's a lot of noise. I think you're all mic'd up. All the mics are working in Cape Town. So if you're near a mic, just be careful in shuffling papers because we're hearing a fair bit from the Cape Town. <laughs> um, flexibility. The second thing they highlighted was risk management features. So the product should manage some risks. Investment risk, inflation risk, longevity risk. Annuities being one example of those. And then, of course, what the people want, apart from flexibility and risk protection, they want high income. Of course they do. The more, the better. So you get high income, you get protection, and you get flexibility. The best of all worlds. And they concluded that the combinations of these products can provide a balance. We think they pinched something from Mercer. This was our retirement trilemma which looked pretty similar to the diagram they put up. Now, you may not have ever heard of the word trilemma. It is in the Oxford Dictionary. That is the long Oxford Dictionary, not the shorter one. Uh, it's just like dilemma, except there's three, not two. Uh, so this pre, uh, we've been using this for four or five years now. And basically, we're saying that retirees with their DC pension pot Retirees want access to income from good net returns with investment choice. Now remember, if you're coming out of a DC environment, you've already had investment choice. You're used to investment choice, so you don't want it taken away just when you move into retirement. So you want good net returns, but you want some choice. Yes, you want protection from risk, and particularly retirees tend to be a little bit more risk averse because they've used up their human capital, they need some protection from investment risk, longevity risk, and inflation risk. The third one we put in our retirement trilemma is they want access to capital. And this is what a lot of people forget. In retirement, you don't just want a level income, but sometimes you have need for capital. Uh, it might be a medical operation, a dental operation. It might be buying the last car at the age of 85 if you're still driving. Um, I've got a 90-year-old mother-in-law who's still driving, and I'm not so sh sure she should be, but don't tell her I said that. Uh, I figure I'm far enough away now to say that. Uh, um, so you need access to capital, and some people want to leave some capital to their kids or grandkids as well after they die. Now, whether you should use retirement systems to do that is a whole different question, but the need for access to capital is something you need, I believe, in your retirement. Um, at least some flexibility. So we had the retirement trilemma. What are the sorts of products that uh, we use in that space? Um, our account-based pension, your liquid annuities give you access to income. It's just that gradual drawdown from a DC pension pot. Annuities may protect you from um, investment and longevity risk and lump sums give you that access to capital. But 
we have a few problems. Because when you move into retirement, the investment returns in the account-based pension or the flexible drawdown product are uncertain. What's it going to deliver? Oh, not sure. How should I invest? Equities? Bonds? Cash? Not sure. There's uncertainty there. So that's one problem. If, on the other hand, we go down to the next um, corner and we look at an annuity, that's often seen to be expensive, particularly in a lower interest rate environment, as we are in the moment around the world. Annuities are naturally expensive. So annuities are, are seen as expensive by someone who's never had anything to do with life companies. They've just had their DC pot going up, they're used to high returns, and all of a sudden they want to buy an annuity. And then, of course, access to capital, no, that's okay, but that might run out. How long am I going to live? I'd better be very careful then. Am I really going to have access to capital at 90, or will I have lived on my uh, pension pot and indeed run out of money? So we have a little bit of an issue when we come to then turning it into an income arrangement. The first tension we have is the tension between volatile investment returns and security. Which one do you want? How much security do you want versus how much volatility are you willing to withstand? You've had volatility in the investment returns in your accumulation years, but it hasn't mattered because you haven't relied on it. You've still got your wages coming in, but now you're relying on it. Do you want security or do you want volatility? Where's, where are you on that continuum? The next tension you have is do you want income or do you want lump sum? You can keep the lump sum, but you won't get much income. At what living, living standard are you going to work for? So there's a tension there. How quickly do I run down the lump sum or use it up, if you like? And then the third area is am I by myself, am I self-insuring, if you like, myself, I'm going to look after myself, or am I willing to pool some of that risk with other people? The problem with the DC pension pot is often we think of it as my money. I've accumulated it through the last 30 or 40 years. It's my pension pot, I'm going to hang on to it. In the defined benefit arrangement, we didn't have that. We didn't really think of it my money, we were just part of that pool of money and they promised us a pension. In the DC environment, more and more we're seeing it as my money, my individual right, I'm not going to share it with anybody. If I die early, the kids can get it, or my wife or husband gets it. We're not sharing. But that takes away the concept of pooling, whether it's through annuities or some other arrangement, and that's a disadvantage, because we know that whenever we pool those risks, as a community, we're better off. If we all self-insured everything, um, it would cost a lot of money and we wouldn't get much utility out of it. So here are some tensions in thinking about the post-retirement product. Earlier this year I was in uh, Toronto, Canada and a few of us met up with Keith Ambertcheer, who uh, many of you will know is a world-renowned pension uh, guru almost. And he, uh, we had a half morning talking around how do we handle some of these tensions. His June 2016 letter summarised that workshop uh, and I won't 
say all in the letter, apart from he's saying there are really two risks in the retirement years. One is the investment risks. Uh, that includes the market risks, sequencing risk, where you invest, etc., and longevity risk. How do you balance those two? What's more, over time, the relative importance of those two changes. In the early years, it's more investment risk. In the latter years, it's more longevity risk. So it's not a constant. Furthermore, their importance is not the same for all households. If you've been diagnosed with cancer at the age of 68, you're not worried about longevity risk. You're going to die in the next few years, unfortunately, but that's a fact of life. Uh, for other households, uh, you might have both couples living through the 95 or even 100. So different households, different longevity issues. Longevity risks can be pooled. Investment risks are harder to pool, although you can have capital protection. Uh, we need to recognise that we will all die, but we'll die at different ages. Government benefits can protect retirees from some of these risks. Now, again, it depends on the country you're in and the level of social security. If you've got very strong social security, those pension risks are better protected. If you've got smaller... I'm thinking of Europe there, if they can afford to continue to pay those pensions. But if you've got uh, lower benefits, then, of course, the government is promising you less. OK. So let me now turn to the Australian system and explain a little bit of what we've done in Australia. Now, the flexible drawdown product in Australia is known as an account-based pension. A range of investment options, I've just put up four there, from growth through to balance to conservative or defensive through to cash. And from those investment portfolios or options, a pension is paid to the retiree each month, each quarter, depending on the choice made by the retiree or each year. What the government in Australia says is you've got to withdraw a certain minimum percentage each year. It's 4% if you're under 65, then it goes to 5%. By the time you get to 95, you've got to withdraw 14% of the balance. So there's a minimum drawdown each year. No maximum drawdown. You can take it all out at the age of retirement if you want to and buy a Lamborghini and then go on the government pension. Most people don't do that. Uh, most people are, in fact, quite risk-averse and actually uh, draw down the minimum percentage or very close to the minimum percentage because they're worried about running out of money and they're worried about that capital need for a medical operation or refurbishment of the home or whatever it might be, so they're hanging on to the money for as long as they can. The government says you've got to draw at least some of it out because it's there for retirement. Um, go ahead and do that. So another way of expressing this is to look at it from what do the retirees want. On the x-axis there, I've just put, uh, let's say, longevity risk. The left-hand side is on your own, you're self-insured, but you'd really love it to be protected. That would be ideal. On the uh, vertical axis, you love high income, you'd prefer that over low income. So ideally, you want to go in the northeast direction. High income and everything protected. I'm sorry, that's, you're not going to get that. <laughs> that's the ideal. But in reality, what you have in different products in different markets, but you have a series of products 
that almost go in the, from northwest to uh, sort of southeast, if you like. As you get more protection, you get less income. As you get less protection, you may be getting higher income. It's the old risk-return trade-off expressed slightly differently. So on the left-hand side, if you only want the liquid annuities uh, and put it all in an investment market-linked product, and depending on where you invest, uh, you've got no protection, but you might get high income if you're lucky. On the right-hand side, if you want protection, yes, you've got the life annuities there, probably less return, and you've got a government age pension, at least in the Australian context, and a smaller pension in South Africa. And in the middle, you might have variable annuities with some protection, some capital protection, um, and the income may be a bit lower than if you didn't have it. Uh, GSAs are group self-annuities, and I'll come on to that in a moment, but group self-annuities are basically a pooled longevity product. So it's not backed by a life company, it's the group of us coming together and having an annuity amongst ourselves. So we pool it together, hence it's called a group self-annuity. The annuity, the group self-annuitises without the help of a life company. So let's look at some of the options here in a summarised form. One option you could do with your pension pot is just spend a lot immediately. Um, in that case, your income level uh, is going to be basically the government pension because you've blown it on the Lamborghini or the world trip. Uh, you have a pretty basic income. Not very attractive for most people. On the other hand, if you take your liquid uh, annuity and have a high drawdown, great in the early years, but there's an increased risk of running out of money. You might be going really well for five or six years, but then it's all gone. So you're going to rely on the government pension or some form of social security, um, and that's not very good either. On the other hand, if you limit your drawdown to a low level in your liquid annuity, um, you're probably not going to run out of money, but you'll be pretty frugal. Um, so where's the balance there? How much do you want in terms of income? On the other hand, you could buy a lifetime annuity that's protected, probably a lower return than you will get from your liquid, life, liquid uh, annuity, but it is guaranteed, although there is counterparty risk, unlike the government. I suppose there is counterparty risk with the government. The government can always choose to reduce the government pension or not index it, and we do see that, see that in some countries. Okay, so... I'm going to use this diagram to explain a little bit more of what we've done in Australia. This is an example where somebody in the Australian context has their uh, flexible drawdown product. They've got a particular level of income they want, a little bit more than $40,000 a year, which is what's known as the comfortable level of income in Australia for a retiree. Our average wage is about $80,000, so it's a little bit above half the average wage, just to put it in broad context. So in this case, someone, I think they started with about $400,000. They're drawing it down. Uh, you notice the darker blue bars from the government age pension increase as they draw it down over the years because it's means tested. When they run out of money or almost run out of money, they'll get the full age pension, which is about $22,000 a year. 
well, about 27% of the average wage. So their biggest fear here is I might get to 86, 87 and run out of the money. The basic government pension is not enough. I'm used to a lifestyle of $40,000 a year. $20,000 is pretty paltry, even if I'm 86, 87, going on 90. So what can we do about it? Is there an, al an alternative? Is there a better way? Now here's some quotes from the Financial System Inquiry report uh, that I mentioned earlier, that reported at the end of 2014. They said managing longevity risk through effective pooling could significantly increase private incomes for many Australians in retirement and provide retirees with the peace of mind that their income will endure throughout retirement. So can we remove that risk of running out of money through some form of managing longevity risk? The government actuary, and there's actuaries we all love, it when the government actuary gets into the press and actually says something people listen to, uh, the Australian government actuary said the GSA, which is this group self-annuity product, delivers more retirement income than the life annuity, and here's the little actuarial tale to it, in expectation. So uh, in expected terms, the group self-annuity should do better than the lifetime annuity because there is no capital to it, there is no life company backing it, all other things being equal, it should do better. Um, so he went on to say, importantly, pooling longevity risk allows retirees to enjoy better living standards than they can enjoy just with an account-based pension, but without any increase in the risk of outliving their savings. So what he's saying there is if I come back to that diagram of running out of money is, okay, if you had this sort of pooled longevity risk concept, then I can afford to live a high living standard because I know if I get to 90 or 95 I'm going to get some other money from this group annuity product because other people will have died to put it bluntly as actuaries we understand that uh, we're not all going to live to 100 some of us will die earlier some of us will die later so their suggestion was that some form of pooling was a more efficient alternative to solving the longevity problem so that as I said, was in the government report handed to the government at the end of 2014. Um, they also talked about the comprehensive income product. We just had a federal election. The government was returned with a reduced majority, but squeaked back. So we're likely to see development on this in the next couple of years. So what have we done at Mercer? We've actually introduced the first group self-annuity product in the market, and the only one thus far. What I've put up here is very similar to a diagram I had before. Different investment options, growth, balanced, conservative. No difference there. We've got another one. Now it's called Mercer Lifetime Plus. And what it actually does is it pays into the pensioner's account, balanced account-based pension, investment earnings. It pays a living bonus and I won't go into all the details of that, but basically what that does is it shares the mortality credits, the disactories we all understand. Now, we decided that mortality credit was not a very sexy, marketable term. Uh, you don't go out and say, I'm going to give you a mortality credit as part of your pension. In other words, we called it a living bonus. It's a bonus because you're alive. Where do you get it from? 
because other people have died and left money in the pool. <laughs> you don't necessarily put it in those blunt terms, but that's what it is. Uh, and we also give them a capital return or some money back of their capital after 15 years. Basically what we've done in this group self-annuity product or pooled longevity product is unbundled a lifetime annuity. If you think of a lifetime annuity, a lifetime annuity has components of investment return, has components of mortality credits, and it has components of a capital payback. They're the three components that make up a lifetime annuity. Now obviously in a lifetime annuity you also have capital backing it and therefore you have shareholders as well who want a dividend. This diagram illustrates what happens in our product, very similar to the diagram I had up before. You see the uh, payments uh, running out at around the $40,000 mark, around 85, 86. You've got income from the age, government age pension, um, full pension coming in at about 83 and staying there. The other coloured bars are the components of our product. Now it depends what formula you use, etc, etc, but this is all in real do in today's dollars, so the light blue is the investment earnings in present value terms, so they slightly diminish as time goes on. The blue is the living bonus or the mortality credits that are shared, and you can see that they, they're a bit like deferred annuity. Uh, the formula we've used concentrates them on the back end because that's when you need longevity protection. Now, and the yellow bars are the capital return. Now, does that give the individual $40,000 a year? No, it doesn't. Depends how much they put in. In this case, they put in 25% of their initial balance or pension pot. But it means they're not living on just the full age pension. Full age pension is around 22000 this is giving them something like an extra eight or $10,000 a year that they would not otherwise have had. Where's that money come from? It basically comes from the fact that those who die earlier leave some money on the table or in the pool for those who live longer, which is exactly what happens in a lifetime annuity. So the uh, three components to it, investment earnings, um, invested relatively conservatively, to try and uh, achieve something like cash plus 60 basis points after all fees, giving capital back after you've been in the product for about 15 years, and the living bonus, which is the actual component of mortality credits. Um, so what does this mean? Another way of expressing this is what's the probability of you meeting your minimum desired level of income? And we've got three alternatives up there. The dark blue is just an average default product, a balanced portfolio. Maybe it's 50 growth, 50 defensive. Somewhat lighter blue is that default product with a bit of tailoring. So a little bit of improvement, but you're still just an investment strategy. And then the lighter blue is the default product with Lifetime Plus. 25% going into our longevity pool. Now you notice that at age 67 the probability of meeting the minimum desired level of income is 100% for everybody. You've only been retired two years, so it really doesn't matter what you've done. You, if you want that $40,000 a year, you're going to have enough money to do it. By the time you get to 79, you've probably got a pretty similar story because it was going to last to 85, 87 in a deterministic model, so 79 was okay. By the time you get to 88, there is a probability allowing for 
the uh, stochastic model that you won't get your minimum desired level. And it's about the same. Uh, it's around 80-85% under the three options. But as you get into your 90s, you can see that there is a distinct reduction in probability in the investment-only approaches because you're running out of money. On the other hand, if you have a longevity pool product there, 92, 96, 99, you're less likely to run out of money. And that's really what it's there for. It's operating with a benefit that's similar to a deferred annuity. Okay, so let's just try and summarise those ways that you can protect yourself against longevity risk. If you take a government pension, it's the taxpayer who's paying for it. The longer you live, the more you'll get from the taxpayer. If you take a defined benefit pension, the longer you live, the more pension you'll get, and the employer is supporting you. Now, as I said, DB pensions around the world are uh, disappearing fairly quickly. If you just take your pension pot and don't do anything, then you're self-insuring. You've got to decide how quickly you run out of money. You've got to decide how quickly you use it or not use it. And our government's a bit concerned that retirees are not using it, and then they're leaving it to the next generation. Their point is that the pension plan is not part of intergenerational transfer or estate planning. The pension plan for which they've given you tax concessions is for your pension, for your retirement, not for the next generation. So that's their thinking. Alternatively, you can pool your longevity um, two different ways. One way with an annuity where you've got capital support from the shareholders or this mutual group self-annuity type product where you're really supported by other retirees who have died or left earlier. So what we're thinking is that if you rely on yourself and self-insure, that's not an ideal product. That's not an ideal outcome. You'll get better value, the community will get better value if we pool the risks and those who die a little bit earlier um, leave a little bit on the table. When we look at post-retirement, however, it's really important that we take on board behavioural finance. As actuaries, we, I think traditionally we haven't done that. We've just done the modelling, done the numbers, and we've ignored behavioural finance. I think we're getting better at that. <clears throat> we need to recognise that retirees in particular have greater sensitivity to losses rather than gains. They don't want to lose money because they want that money to last. So a loss of 5%, they don't want. Do they want a gain of 5%? If I get it, that's okay, but I really don't want to lose 5 or 10%. Now, I'm generalising there, of course, but we need to be aware of that. Individuals also don't like losing control. They don't like handing all their money over to somebody else. In the DC pension pot, they haven't done that. They've had some choice. They want to maintain that choice in their retirement years. So they're concerned if they lose, if there's a chance of losing money if they hand all the money over to a big life company. One of the questions that I think is really important, and it is getting a lot more play 
um, is how you frame the question or how you frame the issue to prospective and current retirees. For instance, when we think about a DC pension arrangement, are we saying to members still at work, ah, you've now got a wealth of a million rand? Or are we saying this is going to generate a pension of X thousand rand? How do we frame the whole arrangement? Are we talking about wealth accumulation or are we talking about future income? If we just talk about wealth accumulation, I think we're giving the wrong message. We need to think about what projected income people are going to or likely to receive. Similarly, if we talk about a longevity pool, are we talking about that as an investment product or are we talking about it as protection? If we're talking about it as an investment product, it's not going to generate as much as a good equity return. But that's not what you buy a longevity pool for. You buy it for some form of protection. So how you frame the options, I think, is really important. I think that also leads you to three different types of retirees. The first sort of retiree is people who say, just do it for me. I don't understand. I don't want to understand. Just do it for me. And I've called that my pension. Just give me a pension and I'll live on it. The second group of retirees are people who want a little bit of help. They want to participate, but they're not quite sure how to get there. So you want some building blocks. Help me do it. Give me a bit of advice. And then there's a third group, and there might be some of us in this room who fall into this category, just leave me to it. I know enough. I don't want your advice. Give me choice. Facilitate choice, and I'll do it myself. Now, I think the danger is we encourage too many people into that right-hand triangle. We don't help them facilitate the choice going forward. We say, you're on your own, just do it. I think a lot of people need that help, need that nudging as we go forward. So, Costa mentioned I might uh, give you some thinking on how governments and regulators should respond to this. I haven't got any uh, huge insights, but I'll raise some questions. Firstly, in terms of policy, what's the best approach from a government policy perspective in terms of retirement income? Should we compel everybody to take an annuity? Now, that's been a fairly common practice in Europe. You just take an annuity, roll it over. That was the old defined benefit approach. Everyone gets a pension, no choice, end of story. I don't think that is the best outcome. There's no lump sum availability in that place and everyone buys the annuity, you're all in it. There'll also be cross subsidies between various groups. Coming down the continuum, the next one is to have a default product or a nudge and say, <clears throat> this is what we think is the best product for most of you. But if you don't want it, you can opt out. So it's sort of like self-enrolment or, um, no, sorry, automatic enrolment, but it's automatic pension, but you have the right to opt out. So it's not compulsory, but we think this is a reasonable approach for most members. Continuing down that continuum may not be a default product, it might be a suggested product, but you have to opt in. So the difference between opting in and opting out is quite important. Are you going to put everybody in? 
or are you going to let them choose? If you're going to let them choose, you better give them some advice. And the fourth option is let them do what they like with very little guidance. And I don't think that's desirable either. Personally, I think a, a, a default product or a nudge with an opt-out provision and information is probably the way we should be going. Um, it's not the defined benefit pension. It's come down from that. But I think we do need to help people. Um, and what that product might look like will vary depending on the members of each pension plan. For instance, if I give you a couple of extreme examples in Australia, um, we have a coal miners fund and we have a, pilot, a Qantas pilots fund. They are two very different demographics. I would suggest that the default product for those two types of members should be quite different. We would expect higher life expectancy of the pilots, lower life expectancy for the miners. We would expect different lifestyles and they would expect different outcomes as well. Their balances would also be quite different, uh, although the miners do get well paid, I should say. Okay, from a government point of view, should there be a carrot or a stick? Should there be incentives to encourage people in a certain direction, or should we force people in a certain direction? That is a philosophical question. There's no single answer there. Again, from a government or regulator's perspective, how much capital should be required? Now let's take, whether it's an annuity or a variable annuity, and you say, okay, there needs to be capital to back the annuity. Fair enough. How much capital should there be? And the more we guarantee in the annuity, the bigger the capital needs to be. Now, should we be thinking of products that aren't quite fixed annuities? but they've got more flexibility, the with profits type annuity, which needs less capital. So I think those sorts of products, uh, there's a variety of products out there. I think the regulators need to uh, recognise that the, as you increase the capital requirements of any protected product or protection product, then the costs are going to go up and they're going to look less attractive for consumers. So can we be a little bit more flexible? And then, of course, what is the role of financial advisors? What protection do consumers need? And are there limits on who can be a financial advisor and which organisation can offer advice? Big questions, no easy answer. I think financial advice is something that many retirees need to help them through the maze of options. Very complicated, lots of options out there. Um, we. Uh, in a situation where we can't have enough financial advisors to have a one-on-one -on -one discussion with every retiree. That's just not possible. So therefore we've got to think about how we use technology, how we use robo-advice or fintech or whatever you want to call it, and are there other ways of doing it that are more efficient and that take people along the road, maybe not to the end of the road, but at least um, a good distance. So, to sum up, I think as we think about retirement income and as we go forward, we need clear and robust policies and we need to know what we're trying to deliver. Firstly, I think we have to recognise that dignity in retirement is something that should be the overriding goal. We want people to have a dignified retirement. My view, we have to have a focus on lifetime income. Yes, there needs to be some capital access 
but it's predominantly an income we should be generating. And yet, in the DC environment, what are we doing often? We are building up a lump sum mentality. We're thinking, how big's the money? That's our wrong mindset. We need to think about how much income will that generate and get people in that mindset. It's also not there for state planning. We need policies that encourage and support continued involvement in the labour force. Maybe it's in a part-time or casual basis. We are going to have to work longer as the ageing population. Less so in South Africa than in many other countries, at least for the next few years. But we have to recognise people are going to work longer and people need the opportunity to transition out of the workforce gradually. We need, and this is uh, perhaps a little bit too optimistic, but we need that the pension design, government policies, tax, the government pension should all be coordinated so that the objectives are very clear and they all point in the same direction. My experience is certainly that that doesn't happen. One department has one policy, the other department has another policy and they pull in different directions. That is not a good outcome. And finally, we need, and we think of what we want in the end, we need to provide adequate benefits in retirement. Now, adequate is a subjective term, I recognise that, um, but it will vary individual by individual. We don't need to support lavish lifestyles. I don't think that's the purpose of a retirement income system, but we need to provide adequate benefits. We need to ensure that it's sustainable. And what I mean by that is sustainable from a government's perspective. If the government is providing tax incentives, which they, most governments do around the world to the pension system, is that level of incentive sustainable going forward? Because if it's not sustainable, one generation is going to pay for another. We need something that is sustainable. We need the system to be seen to be fair, both within a generation and between generations. So it's not the high income earners that get all the benefits. The benefits should be shared across the income. And perhaps optimistically and naively, I suggest it should be simple for the member. Uh, we need to make it as simple as possible because the issues that I've spoken about for the last 45 minutes are complicated, but many of us don't know how a car engine works underneath the bonnet. We just hop in and the car goes. Um, we need a pension system that is a bit similar to that. People operate in it. They understand as far as they need, but they don't need to understand what a mortality credit is or what a guaranteed product looks like. They know what they're getting. Um, so I'll leave it there. Uh, thank you for listening, but I'm very happy to take questions or comments. Um, any questions from the floor? Not a single question. <laughs> uh, in Singapore, uh, no, not Singapore, Cape Town. I'm going to ask you, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, I've got a question. Um, we see a lot, in, in, in insurance these days, a lot of um, individualizations. Oh, can you? Yes, so we've got wearables and all those type of things trying to individualize um, products. And that actually goes against pooling. Um, so I just want to hear your comments on that because the, the, yeah, the general trend of insurance is actually moving against pooling and more individualization. Thanks. Yeah, uh, look, that's a, a really good comment. 
and it doesn't only uh, talk about annuities, but it talks about insurance generally. And I am concerned that as we get more and more individual data and we get more powerful big data analysis, that some people are going to be squeezed out of the market because they can't get insurance for anything like a reasonable price. And as you say, that moves us away from pooling. It moves us into individualised pricing. And I, I think actually as actuaries, we almost have a responsibility to encourage pooling because pooling benefits society. Now, there are obviously limits to that um, and where those limits lie uh, and what constraints you put around on it um, is a question for the profession. Um, now, we've gone, for instance, um, in Europe to, uh, with unisex pricing. Um, so, you know, that means that uh, young women are paying the same for car insurance as young men. But we know that young men often have many more accidents than young women. Uh, but of course then the males pay the same annuity prices as the females. So there is a balance there as to what factors you allow for and what factors you don't allow for. I think that's, you know, that goes beyond annuities, that goes into all insurance products. And I think it's a really important topic for the actual profession to look at in every country um, and I know in Australia, because um, I said on the Institute Policy Committee, um, we've got a group looking at that very topic uh, as to how we should, as actuaries, should be using the data uh, and whether we should encourage some constraints or otherwise. David, I've got a question for you. Yep. Uh, <laughs> um, I've got a question. Hey, Tom? Can you hear me? Yes. So, I'm going to question, we're picking up the static on this side. Um, I've actually got two questions. The, the first one is, in your lifetime plus annuity, could you please comment on the mortality or longevity assumption you make, and what is your process when that needs to change over time? And then the second question is for those remaining, a little bit off the topic, but for those remaining DB funds, how, how active is the longevity swap market? Uh, okay, I'll, I'll take those questions in reverse order. Uh, the first one is I can't really answer the longevity swap market. We don't have it in Australia at all because we actually don't pay DB pensions. Even our DB schemes tend to pay lump sums. Um, apart from the public sector schemes, and they uh, are not interested in longevity swap. Um, I think the major longevity swap markets are in fact in the UK and the US. Um, a number of the DB pension schemes in the UK are actually getting out of that and doing longevity swaps. Um, my understanding is that you can do a longevity swap either external to the fund or within the fund, uh, and you've got to decide which way you go, do you actually uh, swap, move all your pensioners across for a certain price or do you buy some protection into the fund if you like. Um, now coming back to your first question in terms of our Lifetime Plus product, we make no assumptions as to what the mortality rates are because we don't need to. Because um, what we basically do is when somebody exits or dies, withdraws their money as a voluntary exit or, or dies, they will leave some of their money in the pool. We've, we've got no expected number as to whether we're going to have 2% or 5% die. Whatever comes in to the pool, which is an experience issue, 
we will distribute that money at the end of six months to the survivors. So there's no assumption about what we expect. The only assumption we have to make is to whom we do, do we distribute it, and we distribute that based on the Australian life tables, basically. Um, that's one of the factors we take into account, which means that the older survivors uh, get more of it than the younger survivors because their mortality rates are higher. So no assumption in the model, but it's more just used in the distribution of what you might call the uh, surplus or the mortality credits. Thank you. Uh, there's two questions at the back. Um, the first question is on your product. Um, you sort of alluded to it now, but do you then um, categorize the different members in the, that buy the product by age band um, so that the, like, the older members then get more and all of that? Or do you sort of group all of it and then you just use your mortality table saying the older members then again get a higher bonus? And then the second question is how do you communicate it to members? So do the members understand that your bonus is purely going to be based on on experience or, or is there some form of guarantee given to them and then also I mean you obviously guarantee that their money won't run out is the pool just big enough that you that you know that you can secure that yeah, there, there is no guarantee when we talk to the regulator in developing this product the very, their very first question was is there a guarantee no there was no guarantee is a mutual product that purely relies on the experience of the trust if you like or of the of the pool uh, the living bonus distribution is based on, firstly, how much you put in, which is fair enough. The more you put in, the more you should get. Your age and gender, which uh, drives your, the, the mortality rate, if you like, and uh, how long you've been in the fund. We give a little bit of credit to those who've been in the pool longer. Uh, so they're the factors that we take into account. So if we say we've got $100,000 at the end of six months to distribute, we'll look at all the people who've been in the, the pool for that six-month period, how much money have they got, what's their age and gender, and distribute it accordingly. Um, now, your other question was... Oh, communication. Um, what we found there is that many retirees, when they initially retire, don't actually think about longevity risk because they're looking at the next 10 years. They're 65 now, let's say, they're looking at travel, they're looking at hobbies, they're looking at volunteer work, whatever it might be. And they, they're not really looking beyond 75 or 80. Uh, it's only when they, and, and so you could say that, oh, well, okay, maybe we should be selling this product when you get to 75, because all of a sudden in longevity, it, some of their friends are 85 or 90, and oh, I might live to 95 too. Um, so we found that one of the best ways of raising longevity risk, and it's not the first question we ask um, after we talk about risk profile and what their income needs are, etc., is a question like, oh, are mum and dad still alive? Uh, and, or at what age did mum and dad die? Oh, yeah, mum's still alive and she's 96. Oh, you think you might live to 96 too? And you, you sort of raise it from that level rather than just ask a blunt question, when do you think you're going to die? Uh, that's a little bit too blunt. Uh, so we, we're trying to sort of soften that, but use it in an objective way that they can understand. I mean, if both their parents had died at the age of 75, then they may not be interested in longevity. Uh, but the evidence is that 
certainly amongst the white collar um, workers in Australia, most people have at least one parent who've, who's lived beyond 90. Uh, so all of a sudden, oh yeah, I might live to 90. Oh, my money going to run out. Oh, I don't want to be just on 20,000 a year. I'd better think about that. So you just sort of phrase it in that way and let them come to that conclusion rather than force it on them. Um, just two questions. Um, f firstly, in respect of that, that product with, with the living bonus, I mean, is, is it possible for that bonus to be negative? And if so, I mean, how, how would you communicate that? That's um, the first no, question. The, well, I'll answer that one. The bonus can't be negative because the bonus arises from the money left in the pool when people die. So okay, but what, what if not enough people die? Uh, well, if nobody dies, there's no living bonus. Oh, okay. That's, it's, there's no, it's purely experience driven, there's no guarantees. We think when you get to about a thousand lives, the volatility will s smooth itself out and it, it'll be relatively smooth. Mm. Okay. And then, the, then the second question, maybe can you just give a little bit more detail on the, on the, on the GSAs? Because surely, the, 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 it obviously the, the live, it depends which lives are in that pool or not. Because I mean, if, if, for instance, you, you, you would want you would want to exclude the um, healthy people and you'd want as many sick people in, in your pool. So how, sure. how would you choose a pool? Um, well, the, the group self-annuities are a, a term that's used um, often in academic uh, literature um, when they're looking at various ways of protecting longevity risk. In our product, uh, we'll accept anybody. We don't, um, as I say, we don't make promises. We will, uh, we've, we've done some modelling of very conservative mortality rates because we think the mortality rates of people going into any longevity product, like annuitants, um, are going to be lower than the population. Uh, that, that, that's to be expected. So people buying longevity products will have lighter mortality. Um, eventually, uh, as I said, we all die. And uh, y y in that case, the group self-annuity uh, product distributes the surplus. Now there are various forms of group self-annuities. Some uh, try and target a more level income, uh, in other words reduce the volatility that we will get from a living bonus. Um, the problem with that is you need reserves and once you want to level that income then you have reserves and then the regulator starts to get involved because you know, what, what are the reserves? What we've developed is a, in effect, a fully distributing unit trust that you distribute everything. We leave nothing on the table. At the end of each six months, all that's left is the original capital investment uh, and everything else has been invested. And therefore, it's, uh, the prudential regulator says, we're not promising anything. No, we're not. We're just distributing it. Uh, we've got certain formulas to distribute it by, but uh, that's what we're doing. More questions? Cape Town? No. No. Um, well, I think that probably um, allows us then the opportunity of concluding. Um, I think Dr. Knox's presentation is a very time, timely one. Um, as you know, for those of us practicing in the field of advice in the retirement fund arena, um, this concept of default annuities is something that we are you know, um, doing a lot of work on. Um, I'm sure many of you are 
being looked at by your clients in terms of developing appropriate default annuity strategies, advising on appropriate pre-retirement investment strategies, recognizing what those default annuity strategies might be. And I think subject matter such as this that we've just heard, I think is of particular interest to us all. I certainly found the session incredibly useful. Um, there are certain ideas and concepts that, that um, I've not seen before. And I, I'd like to thank Dr. Knox on behalf of the Actuarial Society and on behalf of us all, both here as well as in Cape Town, for the time and effort he has put into putting this presentation together and, and, and speaking to us today. So thanks very much, Dr. Knox. It's, it's most great. Thank you. I'd also like to invite everybody uh, for a drink outside and a snack if you have uh, time available. These are always useful sessions to, to network. I know us actuaries have problems with networking. Um, uh, you know, speaking to other people is always a challenge. Um, but this is a really useful opportunity and uh, I'd like to encourage you to take advantage of it. Um, I'd also like to thank our hosts, Old Mutual, in terms of the facilities that they made available to us. Um, and also, once again, to thank you all for your attendance and your time this afternoon. Thanks very much. Cheers.